This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program, which we have for some time now, planned to be the last broadcast to go out on terrestrial radio for a while. Mr. Mullen and I both have some travel plans for later this spring that's going to make it tough to produce radio on a weekly basis. Therefore, we will continue to produce radio on an irregular, not necessarily weekly basis, and that would be unfair to KZFR and KDVS listeners. Although the general managers of each are free to do with our show whatever they would like, you will still be able to listen to the program courtesy of RadioParallax.com. We do hope to have some interesting adventures to be able to talk about on the show in the months to come. There's a lot of authors and uh, speakers we've promised you or hinted that we might be able to bring to you in the past, and we're going to keep working on those people, which can be frankly difficult. We've talked recently about how it is we would like to do more programming based on things that are not necessarily in the news. And we thought this last program might be a good way to do that, except the news erupted like a volcano in the past uh, week or two, creating a bunch of stuff that we just feel compelled to talk about. So I think today's program is going to be uh, a mixed bag, <laughs> which, of course, makes it no different than other radio parallax programs, of course. One thing I feel compelled to jump right into is the fact that uh, allegedly Kim Jong-un and Donald J. Trump are going to meet. I had to laugh at a writer in the NewRepublic.com saying that the odds of Trump pulling off a Nixon in China breakthrough with North, North Korea are infinitesimally small. Building on that, Jeffrey Lewis in ForeignPolicy.com said, this negotiation will be like Richard Nixon going to China, but if Nixon were a moron. He noted that reportedly Trump jumped on Kim's offer relayed by South Korean diplomats, not realizing that North Korea has been begging for a presidential meeting since at least the Clinton administration. Trump's predecessors all rebuffed these overtures, refusing to elevate the authoritarian leader of North Korea's Orwellian regime to equal status with an American president. Trump is evidently convinced that his own personal genius not only brought Kim to the table, but can now persuade him to give up his nuclear weapons. Noted Mr. Lewis, Kim, however, knows that when Muammar Gaddafi surrendered his nuclear weapons, he was invaded, toppled, and beaten to death by a mob, before being shot, we would add. So is North Korea likely to give up whatever nuclear program they have? Oh, I doubt it. Not only did, did that not pan out well for Muammar Gaddafi, a guy named Saddam Hussein didn't profit by giving up his weapons of mass destruction programs. Although it should be noted, he did, in fact, give them all up long before we invaded him on the pretext that he had not. All right, here's an ad that jumped out at me from The Economist, titled A Mission Like No Other from the Central Intelligence Agency. You're invited to respond to the recruitment center in Washington, D.C. They note that the Central Intelligence Agency seeks high-performing, patriotic professionals with a diverse range of backgrounds, skill sets, and life experiences to serve the United States by advancing the agency's mission as the nation's first line of defense. We're interested in candidates available for full-time, part-time, and consulting opportunities both at home and overseas. That doesn't sound sexy enough. The second paragraph says, For the intellectually curious adventurer 
looking for an unparalleled high-impact international opportunity. We offer a way of life that challenges the deepest resources of an individual's intellect, resilience, and judgment. While no specific work background is required, candidates with experience in business, entrepreneurship, sales, marketing, real estate, and management are highly desirable. I have to admit, we've reported on quite a bit of villainy conducted by the CIA over the years, and it really, I guess, doesn't surprise us much they're looking for people with backgrounds in business, entrepreneurship, sales, marketing, real estate, and management. Because when you're busy out there trying to destabilize a foreign regime, aren't these the kind of talents you want to employ? And uh, apparently Ralph Reed, who's listed as founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, um, hasn't caught up with his mailing list to observe that my late grandmother passed now a good decade and a half ago. He's trying to enlist her in the get-out-to-vote effort. Good luck with that, Ralph. But I have to admit, I was kind of intrigued at what he's putting before the prospective um, Christian voter. Program summary, per Ralph Reed, is that during the 2016 presidential election year, Faith and Freedom Coalition focused our Christian voter registration, education, and turnout efforts in 11 key battleground states and Senate races. Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Iowa, Georgia, Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada. They note that the result, 40% of all voters in 2016 were self-described evangelical or conservative Christians, an all-time record. And 81% of these Christian voters cast their vote for Donald Trump. Yes, Donald Trump, who's currently embroiled in a legal battle where his lawyers are trying to keep porn star Stormy Daniels from walking away from her agreement, not to talk about her relationship with Donald Trump. Yes, Trump's going on the offensive through his lawyers to threaten her with $20 million in lawsuits if she talks. I don't know. To me, this seems like a some sort of new milestone in American jurisprudence. Now that she's talked to 60 Minutes and starting to spill beans, we don't know where this is going to lead. You know what? I feel like jumping in right now to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week for messages to posterity earlier this month, noting that it took 131 years, but the world's oldest message in a bottle has finally made it to shore. Tanya Illman was walking on a beach near her home in Western Australia when she stumbled upon a vintage gin bottle. Tucked inside was a damp scroll detailing the location and the year the bottle was dropped. Makassar, Indonesia, 1886. Illman brought the artifact to the Western Australian Museum where experts confirmed it was tossed overboard as part of an oceanic study by the German Naval Observatory. That's kind of cool. On the other hand, it was a bad week for Lower Michigan, which reportedly has the highest chance of being hit 
by China's Tiangong-1 satellite when it crashes to Earth next month. The probability that any specific person will be struck, said experts, is far smaller than the odds of winning the Powerball jackpot. Well, that may be, but you have a choice to not get involved in the statistics of the lotto, whereas the chances of hundreds of pounds of Chinese space station debris landing on your head is something you weren't really given much choice in. And no, I can't explain why the maps show there's the highest probability of being hit It's something like 43 degrees north or south latitude with a lesser probability in between. If you understand orbital mechanics well enough to explain that, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We certainly hope this will not be a novel approach to urban renewal in Detroit. And it was an ugly week earlier this month for America's ongoing war on opioids with the news that a Florida woman spent five months in jail on charges of drug trafficking because a police field test misidentified her vitamins as oxycodone. It took Rebecca Shaw's husband that long to come up with $5,000 bail and another seven months for a police crime lab to confirm that the pills were vitamins said Shaw of her time behind bars, it felt like my whole life was over. I cried constantly. And yeah, we got no explanation for why that whole thing took a year to resolve. That's just crazy. Speaking of crazy, how about this story about a copter crash that took place in the East River last month? Everyone on board perished except the pilot. Reportedly, pilot Richard Vance was able to free himself and swim to safety, but his passengers were tightly harnessed and trapped in the submerged aircraft. Here's the part I don't get. Vance said one of the passengers' bags may have inadvertently hit the Eurocopter's AS350's emergency fuel shutoff button during the flight, causing engine failure. That seems like a poor design to have that be at all possible. And frankly, about one step removed from the Gary Larson cartoon of the guy sitting in his airline seat with the button that says wings stay on versus wings fall off. And speaking of tech mishaps, of course, the driverless vehicle, I guess this case courtesy of Uber, has now killed its first human being. I guess we can make that our stat of the day. Number of people killed by autonomous vehicles, one and counting. We'll have more to say about tech later in the program. But how anybody believed that the AI in driverless vehicles was going to be so good, this would never happen. Which which people were saying that is beyond me. And by the way, something to keep in mind as we talk about driverless vehicles and we review the fact that there was a lot of hubbub a couple weeks back about the hole in the sun's atmosphere that might allow a coronal mass injection to come slamming into Earth and cause power surges in the power grid and shutdowns and yada yada. Oh, and it also, they mentioned, might cause a disruption of our GPS satellites. This has been a favorite topic on this program. We've talked about it many times in in past programs. If we get another Carrington event, such as what happened in 1859, and it's not it's a matter of when, not a matter of if. When that happens, they might knock out our GPS satellites for quite some time. Driverless cars depend upon GPS satellites. If that happens, they're all going to stop wherever they are. I don't know how we're going to get them off the highways if they don't have steering wheels. Anyway, every so often an edition of the week shows up in the mailbox that just is filled with remarkable stories. I'm looking at at least five of them I have to make passing mention of. Dateline, El Salvador. 
Two Salvadorian women serving 30-year sentences for allegedly having abortions have been released from prison in recent weeks after the country's Supreme Court ruled that their sentences were disproportionate. You think? Teodara von Carmen Vasquez, 34, was freed in February after serving 11 years, while Myra Veronica Figueroa was released last week after serving 15 years. Both women said they'd suffered stillbirths but were convicted of aggravated homicide despite a lack of witnesses and evidence. El Salvador is one of only six countries that ban abortions in all circumstances, including to save the mother's life. Last year, a teenage rape survivor was sentenced to 30 years after having a stillbirth. The court ruled that her failure to seek prenatal care amounted to murder. And uh, no, I don't know whether Ralph Reed's been working down in El Salvador. And speaking of abortions, how about the fact that a California law regulating anti-abortion pregnancy centers has led to a Supreme Court clash? Now, as you possibly are aware, all over California, and I think the nation, these so-called abortion counseling centers have been set up, whose purpose is to make damn sure that anyone that comes to the doors does not get an abortion. Writing in the East Bay Times, Mark Sherman said that even as it advertises free pregnancy services and promises in signs on its door and inside to discuss all options with pregnant women, informed choices exists to steer women away from abortion. The state of California, prompted by abortion rights groups, worried that vulnerable, uninsured women were going to informed choices and other anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, expecting they would get comprehensive care. That prompted passage of a new law requiring crisis pregnancy centers that are licensed by the state to let their clients know that abortions and other medical services are available elsewhere for little or at no cost. It also requires unlicensed facilities to post signs disclosing they are unlicensed. The president of Informed Choices claims that if they had to post such a sign in their licensing centers, if they had to post such a sign in her licensed center's waiting room, or hand information to a client, would force informed choices to act as a billboard for the abortion industry. I must say, on a personal level, I have seen this sort of thing in action. Several colleagues of mine who were rabidly Catholic, who were rabidly Catholic and flamingly anti-abortion, would make a point, if a woman came into urgent care, to make sure abortion didn't get mentioned and they did not wind up in any place that might provide that service. I thought that was wrong. I thought that was unethical. And yet, at the time, being that I was working for Catholic Healthcare West, it was a matter of record that CHW, or as it's now known, Dignity Health, when it would buy hospitals in rural rural areas of California, would quietly, slowly make sure that abortion services got discontinued. Anyway, back to the world at a glance from the week. Apparently in uh, France, Steve Bannon showed up at a rally of the right-wing party headed by Jean-Marie Le Pen. Evidently, at a party congress, Le Pen said that the new name for the organization, National Rally, would be a cry for unity, a call to join us, sent to everyone who has France at heart. It was noted, however, that the name drew quite a bit of criticism in France because it carried echoes of the popular National Rally, the party that collaborated with the occupying Nazis during World War II. Steve Bannon showed up as a guest speaker. He said, let them call you racist. Wear it as a badge of honor. Meanwhile, down in La Paz, Bolivia, a city I like very much, by the way, 
Thousands of Bolivians unfurled a 125-mile-long flag in show of support for their landlocked country's attempts to regain access to the Pacific Ocean. Billed as the world's largest banner, the 10-foot-wide bright blue Maritime Vindication, that's in quotes, flag, extended between the cities of La Paz and Oruro. That's, that's, yeah, it's 125 miles. It was decorated with Bolivian national symbols. Chile, it should be noted, seized a chunk of territory that included all 250 miles of Bolivia's former coastline in the 1879 War of the Pacific. Bolivia is suing the International Court to win back at least a sea corridor. Over in Russia, Vladimir Putin has uh, gotten himself re-elected. I think someone in The Onion had pointed out several weeks before that that uh, Putin was so excited about things, he was thinking about announcing the results weeks in advance. Putin, of course, continues to deny interfering in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, saying the meddling could have been the work of Jews. During an interview with NBC's Megyn Kelly, Putin was asked about the 13 Russian nationals charged in February by special counsel Robert Mueller for allegedly attempting to spread political discord in the U.S. Maybe they're not even Russians, Putin said. Maybe they're Ukrainian, Tatars, Jews, just with Russian citizenship. Maybe they have dual citizenship or green card. Maybe the U.S. paid them for this. Jewish groups and U.S. lawmakers protested. Meanwhile, down in Nikomaroro Kiribati, and I'm pretty sure that's the first time we've ever said that, it's being alleged that human bones found on that small island belong to American aviator Amelia Earhart, who vanished over the Pacific in 1937. This is a bogus story. I don't know why I'm repeating it except to scoff at it, I guess. But forensic anthropologist Richard Jantz believes that 13 bones found on that island in 1940 were Earhart's. They conducted a forensic analysis in 1941 to conclude the bones belonged to a man. But Jantz says advances in bone measurement indicate they could have belonged to a woman of Earhart's size. Saying in the Journal of Forensic Anthropology, if the bones do not belong to Amelia Earhart, then they are from someone very similar to her. I hope Trump doesn't hire this guy to combat global warming. All right, here's another item I can't resist. This is also from the week. From there, it must be true. I read it in the tabloid section, which oftentimes is not tabloid content. Um, In this case, a Colorado dad evidently ate an entire bowl of suspiciously stale-tasting cereal, only discover after he finished it, (laughs) it was 21 years old. Reportedly, Joles Carelsi bought the box of Quaker granola cereal at Walmart the week before and said he noticed it had a funny taste, but he kept eating it and then inspected the box to note that the granola's sell-by date was February 1997. Carelsi said he felt fine after eating the ancient oats. Walmart is reportedly looking into the incident. I'm sure he'll be fine. All right, here's another item out of left field, which is, I think, the theme of today's program. Noting that it almost sounds like a story from the satirical news site The Onion, quote, In massive mistake, Elon Musk rides own Tesla to Mars, thinking electric car's battery will run for 70 million miles instead of just 300. Such headlines, of course, are jokes, but what apparently isn't a joke is Musk's affection for humor, The Onion, and apparently some of its senior staff members and editors. According to a report from The Daily Beast, Elon Musk has hired a dozen editors with ties to The Onion as part of a secret project that may end up being a rival satirical humor site. The Daily Beast said it can can confirm 
that former Onion Editor-in-Chief Cole Bolton and Executive Editor Ben Berkeley have been working on the Musk Finance Project in Los Angeles since last year after the two left the Onion because of differences with its management team. And uh, we're not sure what to make of this. I do have a feeling, though, in the future, The Onion will poke less fun at Elon Musk. What do you think? And even weirder than that is the following item. Actually, I should preface this by asking you, dear listener, if you've noticed, and, and if you've been at the right place at the right time, you have noticed, while driving along Highway 380, beautiful drive down the peninsula, driving through Hillsborough, very hoity-toity neighborhood, you have no doubt looked off to the west while you're driving to notice what looks like a setting from the Flintstones movie. It has been described as a Bay Area landmark, and that it is, but it really and truly resembles nothing so much as a gaily painted movie set that might adjoin some kind of kiddie theme park. It wasn't so bad when it was all painted white. <laughs> Some time back, the part of it was painted kind of a burnt orange with other parts uh, in purple. Note of the reporting on this. Retired media mogul spruces up Hillsborough's famed Flintstone house, and now it's yabba-dabba-fantastic. The Marissa Kendall notes that faced with the sweeping backyard of her newly purchased $2.8 million home, Florence Fang considered her landscaping option. Should she plant dainty cherry trees or perhaps a picturesque vineyard? Then inspiration struck. She needed a herd of 15-foot-tall dinosaurs. The article notes this wasn't just any multi-million dollar Hillsborough home. It was the Flintstone house with its orange and purple domes that had become a loved and hated Bay Area landmark along the northbound commuter up Interstate 280. I say 380? 280. Cherry blossoms weren't going to cut it. Before, I always wondered who was living in that house. Now, I'm the one. Should be noted for real estate speculators that the three-bedroom, 2,700-square-foot home sat on the market for a while. It was put on the market in September of 2015 at a price of $4.2 million, which was then dropped to $3.7 million, then to $3.2 million before selling for $2.8 million. Described as a cool reception all but unheard of these days in the Bay Area's red-hot housing market. The article notes that Fang, a Chinese immigrant whose family former owned the San Francisco Examiner, the Independent, and Asian Week, has been an influential political force in San Francisco. She wound up at the doorstep of the Flintstone House after telling her realtor she was in the market for a 3,000-square-foot home with a nice view. The strange house was the last thing she expected. But reportedly, as soon as she stepped inside, she fell in love and made an offer. And speaking of Silicon Valley, which, in effect, we are, let's talk about this piece by Ethan Barron, which appeared in Bay Area News Group. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful land filled with bright minds and gleaming prospects. People called it Silicon Valley, and out of it flowed knowledge, ideas, and innovations that gave us almost unthinkable powers to learn, to communicate, to transform our lives into exactly what we wanted them to be. The region's denizens toiled happily at the cutting edge, and day by day they were making the world a better place. Today this beautiful land is under attack from within and without. The products and services it sends out into the world are being called addictive, divisive, and even damaging, raising the cry that instead of making the world better, they are making it worse. 
The article notes that this technology plays a deeper and more pervasive role in nearly every aspect of our lives. The industry that upended everything from shopping and travel to education and human relations is facing a backlash the likes of which Silicon Valley has never seen. Polarizing online content and Russian manipulation of social media platforms have fueled calls from the right and left for greater regulation in firms such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter. World Wide Web inventor Tim Berners-Lee, Republican U.S. Senator John McCain, leftist billionaire George Soros, Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff, and conservative Fox News host Tucker Carlson have all joined the chorus demanding the government take action. Critics argue that the big tech firms have become too economically dominant, intruding too far into our lives, and have too much control over what gets seen and shared online. At the same time, critics contend these same companies have failed to take responsibility for the misuse of their services by malevolent actors, for the spreading of fake news, and for the way their platforms and algorithms can be gamed. Writing at the UC Haas School of Business, Professor Abhishek Nagaraj has said, it is unprecedented. I think this is because of how deeply penetrating tech is in people's lives. Nagaraj, who studies the tech industry, compared the demonization of Silicon Valley to the outcry against Wall Street after deceptive investment banking practices knocked the U.S. into the Great Recession. It appears as if basically tech is the new finance, Gaharaj said. I would pause at this point to inject that uh, the difference between the tech industry and Wall Street seems pretty thin from this, from our perspective. I think this was... Uh, evidenced metaphorically, at least, on HBO's Silicon Valley, watching how uh, the tech nerds would develop something that could be quite interesting and applicable, only to get involved with various financing schemes of business weasels who were buying and selling and cutting their legs out and going around them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I have a feeling is pretty accurate. The article notes that San Jose State University anthropology professor Jan English Lewick who has researched Silicon Valley's culture, said increasingly the public views the tech industry as a force against which they are powerless. It's now on people's radar screen to be a place of the elite, where they're changing the world in a way that ordinary people don't have an influence on. I have to laugh when later in the article they quote from Stephen Milligan, CEO of the San Jose data storage firm Western Digital, says he doesn't think technology can solve everything, but Milligan isn't buying the notion that Silicon Valley has lost its bloom. The region's companies are still trying to solve real problems in the world and have a positive impact on people's lives. And uh, Silicon Valley boosters, such as Peggy Burke, CEO of Palo Alto branding agency 1185, will tell you that the technology industry can fix the problems it creates. You have to weigh the good and the bad. If the bad gets so bad that it outweighs the good, then someone will solve for that. If there's a problem, traffic, transportation, housing, stopping Russian fake news, someone in the Valley right now is working on solving that problem. I've been in the Valley for 30 years, and I have seen it happen over and over. Yes, that's right. Too much technology can be fixed by more technology. Of course it can. And we're going to fix the woes of the Delta ecology by taking water out of the Delta. No, in fact, I'm sure they will be able to mitigate a lot of the problems that are being generated by tech. But on the other hand... What about this Cambridge Analytics thing? All right, let's uh, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Mm-hmm. 